KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. A rally in San Diego to stop changes that slow down the post office. This is not a political issue at all. This is about the future stake of the United States Postal Service. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Ellison St. John. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A movement to counter racial justice protests takes shape in East County. This story is right there on kind of the razor's edge of of this culture war between the, the left and the right. Another day of scorching heat in San Diego and the threat of rolling blackouts. And a new children's book tells the story of Chicano Park. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. In response to mounting pressure, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy announced today that he is suspending policies he implemented that were blamed for causing mail delays. Part of that pressure came from San Diego this morning. All of the counties serving members of Congress gathered at the Midway Post Office to join in what was billed as a national day of action against changes in postal operations that could threaten mail-in balloting this November. Here's San Diego Congressman Mike Levin. Millions of Americans depend on the Postal Service to deliver prescriptions, Social Security benefits, paychecks, and yes, absentee ballots. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has announced her intention to bring lawmakers back from recess to vote on legislation aimed at stopping changes to post office operations. Joining me is the president of San Diego's American Postal Workers Union Local 197, Eddie Cooper Jr. And Mr. Cooper, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, the changes that have been taking place across the country include mailboxes and mail sorting machines being removed. What changes have you seen to post office operations in San Diego? Well, the changes in San Diego, unfortunately, we've had some mail processing machines uh, removed out of our processing plant here in San Diego, uh, which has, uh, you know, resulted in some, some delays and mail being delivered. Uh, We've had six, specifically six mail processing machines removed out of our plant, Uh, but we've also, just to be uh, transparent, we've had six machines extended so that they can process more mail. And we've had a couple other of our mail processing machines tarped for the time being 
with hopefully the intention of during the fall mailing season and the uh, upcoming political season that those machines will be put back into action. But there has been limited or minimal rather uh, delays here in San Diego to my knowledge, but the removal of those machines and, and, and it does hamper the ability of postal employees to be able to do their mission, which is to ensure that the American public receives their mail in a timely uh, timely fashion. Now, in his statement today, Postmaster DeJoy says that overtime will continue to be approved. Had there been changes to overtime rules for postal workers? Yes, I wouldn't say changes to the rules, but changes in the authorization of overtime. Here in San Diego, as of late over the last few months, as a matter of fact, we had been quite a bit of overtime usage. And just literally within the last four, three, four weeks, that has been reduced drastically. And I mean drastically, uh, almost to the, uh, to the extent where there's hardly any overtime. And our non-career employees who would average around between 35 and 45 hours a week, their hours have been reduced as of late to around 24 to 32 hours a week. So there has been a reduction, a significant reduction in the work hours of um, uh, postal employees here in San Diego. And you say there have been delays in mail delivery here in San Diego? Very minimal, whereas up until about three, four weeks ago, the postal services mantra was every piece of mail, a first class mail would have to be processed every day. Where per, per Postmaster DeJoy's directive about three, four weeks ago, uh, the carriers were instructed to leave mail behind if it's not up and ready for them when they are tasked to hit the street. So that would result in them leaving their particular station without all of the first class mail and what's left would go the next day. So that is a direct uh, delay in the delivery of the mail. Absolutely. Now, the Postal Service is suddenly right in the middle of a political fight over funding and mail-in balloting. What effect has that had on postal workers? At the present time, it hasn't had any effect, but just the fact of knowing what's hanging over our head in regards to if we don't get that funding, what the catastrophic effects would be. The way I understand it, if we do not get that $25 billion stimulus that we desperately need, the United States Postal Service literally can be out of money within the next four to five months. Now, what is going to result from that, no one knows. And it's that uncertainty that has a lot of postal employees nervous, anxious, scared, all of the above. As you can imagine, if you don't know what's going to happen with your job, uh, that's very unnerving. Now, the post office, everyone knows, has persevered during the pandemic with postal workers becoming essential workers in keeping the nation going. If it were not for this injection of politics that may or may not be reversed now, according to the stance of Postmaster DeJoy, how would the Postal Service be gearing up for this election? Because you already know there's going to be so more, many more mail-in ballots than ever before. Well, we up to, we're up to the task of delivering the mail. That's what we do. We deliver millions of pieces of mail every day. So that wouldn't be anything different than what we have done and what we will continue to do. It would hamper uh, the financial resources as far as being able to provide more overtime and, and, and to pay for the overtime and everything else that's needed to continue what we've always done. But we feel very confident 
the American postal workers feel very confident that we can get the job done with the existing infrastructure and resources that we have now. We just need for those infrastructures and those resources to be continued and available to postal workers. But we can get the job done. We can move the mail. That's what we do. Now, your union has endorsed Democratic candidate Joe Biden for president. Do you see your fight against the changes at the post office as politically motivated? Not at all. This is not a political issue at all. This is about the future stake of the United States Postal Service. And again, I need to be clear about that. The Postal Service is a service. It's not a business. We are here to serve the American public. And we oppose any action that slows down the mail. We serve the public. There's nothing political about it. Uh, we, are, we have endorsed uh, Vice President Biden and uh, Kamala Harris as the Vice President. That is true, but this is not a political issue. This is a postal service issue. This is a postmaster general issue. This is a public service issue. I've been speaking with the president of San Diego's American Postal Workers Union, Local 197, Eddie Cooper, Jr. Mr. Cooper, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And once again, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy announced today that he is suspending policies that were blamed for causing mail delays. He says he wants to assure Americans that retail hours at post offices will not change. Mail processing equipment and collection boxes will remain. No mail processing facilities will be closed. And that overtime has and will continue to be approved for Postal Service employees. The demonstrations in support of racial justice, police accountability and Black Lives Matter have sparked a counter-movement which is showing up in disturbing confrontations in San Diego's East County. A Facebook site called Defend East County has recently swelled to over 20,000 followers. San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Andrew Dyer has written about the origins of the group and increasingly volatile face-offs between protesters and counter-protesters in East County. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So why did you decide to, to research and write about the confrontations happening in East County? Well, I've had my eye on the group uh, about since the beginning. I was allowed into the group about a week after it formed. This is the Defend East County group? Yes, it's a, a Facebook group called Defend East County. It's one of several similar groups in, in San Diego, uh, but it's it's the largest that I've seen with, with more than 20,000 members. Now, it was started, you write, after the La Mesa protest at the end of May, uh, which turned very destructive. Give us an overview of the aims of the group and, and the posts on the site. It started um, as a very kind of grassroots reaction to the looting and arson in La Mesa. Community members, you know, business owners and, and other people in the community, you know, they did not want to see that happen again. So uh, they kind of organized in order to kind of stand watch at businesses. You know, in La Mesa that night, I was I was also there and there were a handful of businesses where people did go and stand in front of them, maybe the owners or friends of the owners, and they were largely untouched by looters. So um, just having a person standing in front of a business, you know, it looked effective, at least in La Mesa on, on May 30th. So that was how it started. But because it is a reaction to Black Lives Matter, 
Um, it also attracted another element of people who actively oppose the Black Lives Matter movement and, and saw this as an opportunity to engage with, with the protesters. What do we know about the person who created the Facebook group, Justin Haskins? Justin Haskins, he is um, formerly of, of East County. He, he now lives in Arizona, where he's incorporated Defend East County into an, an LLC. I spoke to him to the story, and, and he doesn't see himself as a leader of a group. To him, this is just a community, uh, a community forum, and um, he happens to be the person who started the group and who administers it, but um, he, I, I describe him as kind of a, a reluctant leader. Well, this country, you know, encourages free speech and demonstrations and counter-demonstrations are, are part of a democratic society. What is it about the confrontations that you've reported on that you find concerning? Well, you know, among the counter-demonstrators, there are different trains of thought. You know, some of them only want to stand in front of businesses. They don't want to engage in counter-demonstrating. They don't want to provoke protesters. But there is another group who sees this as an opportunity to express their First Amendment rights and to, you know, bring, you know, there's a lot of Trump flags, American flags, pushing back on on the the aims and perspective of Black Lives Matter. So, so I, I, I want to make it clear that, you know, this this group, you know, there are different trains of thought and there are different aims and goals. But I think in the August 1st, protest in La Mesa, there were a, a group of people, counter demonstrators, who um, several videos from the protest show kind of ran into the crowd of Black Lives Matter protesters and did engage in physical altercations. Uh, one witness said that they, you know, grabbed somebody's bullhorn and threw it on the ground and grabbing people's signs. There were punches thrown and one man was, was uh, arrested. So um, after that incident after the August 1st protest turned violent, I decided to that it was probably time to take a, a deep dive into the group and, and, and talk about what is actually happening online because now it is having a, a real world uh, impact. Now, Haskins says that he's not a follower of the QAnon conspiracy theories, although he says in your article that, quote, it sounds like there is a lot of truth to QAnon. What kind of conversations around it are happening within the Facebook group? QAnon has really taken a foothold in the, you know, the conservative movement. And it's been, you know, the president, President Donald Trump has retweeted QAnon accounts. It's, um, there are several candidates for higher office that have promoted QAnon on, on their social media accounts. So this is, it's kind of a new tendril, I think, in the, in the conservative movement. I didn't see a lot of Q stuff in the Defendees County Facebook group until very recently. A lot of QAnon adherents have kind of latched on to the uh, Save the Children movement um, because part of the Q conspiracy is this idea that there is a child sex trafficking ring among Democrats and Hollywood actors, including like satanic ritual and sacrifice and just a, a lot of conspiratorial stuff like that. And so they've kind of found another movement to kind of, um, it's kind of like a gateway to QAnon. Um, it, it's not hard to get people to agree that child abuse is wrong. So they kind of take it a step further and, and give you this whole framework of a conspiracy around ritualistic child abuse. And so in mid-July, it was the United Nations Save the Children Day. And 
out of that, I started seeing a lot more kind of Q affiliated chatter on social media, kind of co-opting that save the children hashtag. And it began to, to manifest and defend East County. So Haskins also denies that this Facebook group is racist. Is, is that credible? You know, it, I, I wouldn't call the group itself racist. It is a group where racist conversations take place, though. So, uh, you know, with 20,000 people, you know, um, many of them, you know, disagree with a lot of the stuff that is talked about in there. Um, but it, it is a place where one might find like-minded individuals if, if you disagree with the Black Lives Matter movement. So it sounds like there's quite a spectrum of opinions. Um, this group could be a, a gateway to more extreme opinions. East County is struggling, you know, to move away from its fraught history when it comes to race and hate groups. How is the community reacting to what looks like a reemergence of some of that culture that was well documented in places like Santee? You know, it, it's a sore spot for people. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people that live in, in Santee and El Cajon. You know, there are a lot of people who live there who are not racist and they do not agree with this stuff. And it's painful for them to read over and over again about these incidents that, you know, bring up that history. You know, a lot of people do want to move on from it, but it also is true that there is a segment of the population, um, not just in East County, this is throughout San Diego County, but there is a, a small percentage of people who do hold extremist beliefs in, in, in the area. And it just so happens that those voices sometimes um, are the loudest. What kind of feedback have you gotten from people who've read your story? It's uh, a mixed bag because, you know, the story is right there on kind of the razor, razor's edge of, of this culture war between the, the left and the right. So it, it kind of depends on where people land on that spectrum, whether they like the story or not. We've been speaking with Andrew Dyer, San Diego Union-Tribune reporter. Thank you very much for your reporting, Andrew. Thank you. I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. California's governor declared a heat emergency today in order to free up energy generation capacity. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says Gavin Newsom also wants an investigation into what led to rolling blackouts around the state. Mandated power outages roiled California residents this past weekend as state power grid managers struggled to keep the lights on in the midst of a summer heat wave. 
It's the first time that's happened since 2001, and Governor Gavin Newsom is not happy. We'll get to the bottom of it, and that's why that investigation to what happens and its implications for the future will be done swiftly and immediately, and we will lay out in detailed terms what we're going to do to make sure this simply doesn't happen again. Newsom says the power grid operator's failure to anticipate the spike in demand and to meet that spike with additional resources is unacceptable and unbefitting of California. He says fires around California and a warming climate are not excuses. He says the state is moving to secure more emergency power. That includes allowing businesses to run reserve generating facilities even if those facilities cause more pollution. Even with all of that, uh, we are likely to fall short, and we should see uh, some episodic uh, issues as it relates to supplying the coverage that you deserve and you demand. At a board meeting on Monday, members of the California Independent System Operator, called CalISO, criticized members of the California Public Utility Commission for not ordering them to buy more electricity. Energy analyst Bill Power says the current power delivery system failed California. He says reserves on paper did not become reserves in real life. And Powers is not optimistic the governor's call for an investigation will be good enough. They peel back one or two layers of the onion, but they don't get deep enough to look at the institutional problems that expose us to these kinds of unexpected blackouts. It has nothing to do with climate change. Power says the entire episode could have been avoided by better power management. Meanwhile, San Diego Gas and Electric officials say their customers can help relieve the pressure on the power grid. SDG&E spokeswoman Denise Menard says conservation is the key. Here at SDG&E, right, obviously we know that it's really hot outside and we don't want people to be sitting in their homes without their AC on, but we are asking people to conserve in every way that they possibly can. So if that's setting your AC to 78, let's try to do it. Nard says if local demand can be cut, that'll have a real impact on how the state's power grid handles the next few days. National Weather Service officials say the dome of hot air will likely sit over the region through Thursday, Power grid operators, Cal ISO, decides when a region like San Diego will have to resort to rolling blackouts and how long those power outages will last. SDG&E will track and report the location and duration of outages on their webpage. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. Cal ISO has ordered SDG&E and other utilities across the state to begin rotating outages this afternoon. As many as 100,000 SDG&E customers could lose power for about an hour. The immediacy of the COVID-19 pandemic has distracted California from what is a more serious existential threat, climate change and sea level rise. The California Legislative Analyst's Office has issued a well-researched report with sobering reminders of what sea level rise will do to our coastline, our economy and to our public and private property. Rachel Ehlers, author of the report, joins us to talk about why we would be better off preparing for sea level rise rather than waiting for it to hit. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So not so long ago, we were talking about sea level rise in terms of inches, and now it's feet. It's not sometime in the future now. It's, it's in our lifetimes. What estimates did you decide are credible for your report? 
The latest guidance suggests with somewhat certainty that, that we will see about a foot of sea level rise by 2030. As the years go out, the uncertainty grows, but the latest recommendations from the state are suggesting to plan for 3.5 feet by 2050 and up to seven feet by the end of the century. Let's focus on San Diego County. Economically, San Diego has a huge port, for example. How would sea level rise affect that? Yeah, the economic impacts for San Diego are serious. It's not just residential houses along the coast. It's not just the recreation economy and the beaches, but also the port and the Navy uh, base that are there along San Diego Bay and key pieces of the economic picture in San Diego and really quite at risk from sea level rise. So, and, and also the transportation networks that come from the port and and feed into the port with the the train tracks you saw in Del Mar in December, the cliffs eroding had to shut down the train passageway for a period while there were repairs because the cliffs erosion was so close to the tracks. So really pretty serious regional impacts that are going to need to be addressed. How do you estimate economic damage to this part of the California coastline, say by 2050? There have been some funded studies just around economic impacts in San Diego County, and they're pretty sobering. Uh, They suggest that with three feet of sea level rise combined with a large storm, it could impact 15,000 jobs and $2 billion of regional gross domestic product. So pretty large numbers, and really a lot of it focused around the tourism and recreation industries. So who is responsible for planning for sea level rise? Is it mainly up to local government? Yeah, it it really is because most of the land use decisions are made at the local level. Uh, Most of the funding typically comes at the local level. Uh, Most of the public property along the coast is owned at the local level. But the state can play and should play a really important role, helping in particular fund some pilot projects that we can learn from. The California Coastal Commission has been urging local jurisdictions to come up with adaptation plans. Is there actually money to help cities put those plans into practice, though? Some. We, the state has has some funding primarily through voter-approved bonds. Uh, there was a lot of discussion in Sacramento the beginning part of the year about putting another bond on the ballot uh, statewide for voters to approve that really focused on climate change and climate adaptation and climate response. Uh, Those plans were put on hold due to the pandemic and other priorities. I know here in San Diego, one of the major barriers to planning is resistance from private property owners who don't want their property values to go down, understandably. What can be done to overcome that? Well, one of the biggest steps we can take is just greater public understanding of what's coming. None of us want property values to go down and none of us want um, our houses to to be threatened or lost, but what's coming is coming. Uh, The science is relatively clear about that. We have some uncertainty about the degree and timing of sea level rise, but we know it's coming. And so uh, we can prepare for it or not. Um, So our our advice to our bosses in the legislature and to the public is is to start preparing. And one of the big ways to do that is for people to understand it's not gonna happen tomorrow. So we don't need to change things tomorrow, but, but it is coming. And so how can we be thoughtful about what is coming and what the best ways to prepare for it are that minimize harm and impact to people and our natural resources. I understand one of the possible measures would be to require that coastal flooding disclosures are part of any real estate transactions. 
you know, the state has disclosure for real estate for uh, threats like wildfires and earthquakes. There's actually more certainty about what's happening, what will happen with sea level rise and the flooding than there is about earthquakes, which we don't know when they'll come or even wildfires. And so we think as a public policy measure, it makes sense for buyers and um, investors to have uh, a fully informed decision when they're making a decision like buying a house, which is usually the largest purchase that a family will make. You actually cite three main strategies for tackling rising seas. Just quickly as a thumbnail, what are they and which are we using so far? Uh, yeah, there are three. One is to protect, which is building seawalls or building up uh, wetlands or piling rocks to try and keep the waves from coming. Uh, we can also uh, adapt or modify, which is uh, actions like raising buildings or structures to allow for periodic flooding. And then we can relocate. We can move out of the harm's way <laughs> of where the, the flooding will come. And so it's going to take a combination of all three of these strategies, certainly, to respond to the challenges that we're facing. Um, we've done quite a bit of protecting so far, and that's probably appropriate given we haven't had the degree of sea level rise yet, but that won't be the only strategy upon which we can rely in the future. We're going to need to look in a situation by situation basis and decide which is the most appropriate and use all three. So what do you hope issuing your report now will do? Our goal with this report was really to help deepen the understanding both for our bosses in the legislature, but also within the public about the threats that sea level rise pose, because we won't make any progress on our adaptation actions without understanding what the problems are. And so that that's really our goal here, that it broadens understanding and starts to help support some further actions to begin preparing. We've been speaking with Rachel Ehlers, who's author of the report, What Threat Does Sea Level Rise Pose to California? Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you for having me. A number of wildfires are currently burning in California. This week we're exploring how assisted living facilities are preparing for emergencies in a special series from our colleagues at KQED called Older and Overlooked. The investigation found that across the state, 37% of these facilities are located in areas at heightened risk for wildfire. It's a little higher in San Diego County at 41%. But in Nevada County, 100% of facilities are at risk. KQED's health correspondent April Domboski traveled to Grass Valley in Nevada County before COVID-19 to see how assisted living facilities for the elderly are preparing for wildfire season. April tells us a new law aimed at helping these facilities prepare for disaster is falling short. Continue on California 49 South for nine miles. Randy Dinning spends most of his work week in his black Honda Fit. He's a long-term care ombudsman for the State Department of Aging, which means he drops in at residential facilities for the elderly to check on the quality of the food or the care. But on this shift, for the first time, he's asking about disaster preparedness. Alrighty, off we go. First stop of the day is Sierra View Manor. This is assisted living. 
as opposed to skilled nursing, which is overseen by the State Department of Public Health. Assisted living is non-medical. It's overseen by the State Department of Social Services. So overall, the rules here are weaker. But Randy isn't the enforcer. As an ombudsman, he's more the tattletale to the enforcers. Straight away, he has to talk to the boss. If uh, the boss lady is around. Hi. Administrator Vanessa Lee Tennies comes out, and as Randy tries to ease into questions about disaster planning, she interrupts to say, we are the best. Well, I'm going to brag right from the beginning. And she begins listing the virtues of her generator cover the entire building so and their evacuation plan within seven minutes and, and the go bags they prep for each resident. Do you guys do drills and stuff yeah. like that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do we do, do those. Here? We do evacuation drills. Really? Oh, oh yeah. Darn. I have. Um, How often? Uh, probably every quarter. Every quarter. Yeah. But the conversation gets awkward when Vanessa reveals they only have one employee on staff overnight, caring for 46 residents. If wildfire strikes, she says the folks at the skilled nursing facility next door will take them in. But they're not going to have 46 beds over there. No. She says maybe they'd take them to the local high school. But we're never going to have one of those kinds of emergencies. I insist. <laughs> <laughs> but that's exactly what happened nearly three years ago in Santa Rosa when wildfire swept through in the middle of the night. Two assisted living facilities had only a handful of staff, and they left about 100 elderly residents behind for relatives and police to rescue. One facility burned down, as did eight others across the state that year. That was a, a, a real eye-opener for us, that staff weren't trained. Pan Dickfoss is the enforcer. She oversees licensing for assisted living facilities for the Department of Social Services. She says the new law that took effect last year was a direct response to what happened in Santa Rosa. These fires identified the need for the entire area to be evacuated. Instead of being prepared to escape a kitchen fire, as the older law outlined, facilities now need to have options of where they'll go, two shelter locations for how they're going to get there, plan for transportation, and who will be responsible for what. This bill really strengthened the requirements in an emergency plan. But state data indicates the department is reluctant to enforce them. In 2018, state inspectors cited just 62 facilities for having an insufficient disaster plan. Last year, when the law took effect, they cited 239. But that's still just 3% out of nearly 7,600 facilities across the state. Dick Foss says inspectors see themselves more as consultants rather than disciplinarians. It's really a collaborative effort across the state between the providers, between the advocates and the department. But that's not how some advocates for the elderly see the department. It's the provider protection agency, not a consumer protection agency. Chris Murphy runs an advocacy group dedicated to assisted living reform. She and her colleagues have been asking regulators for better evacuation plans and training for a decade. They will rarely come down on the side of the consumer. She says the new law was written by the assisted living industry and doesn't do nearly enough to protect residents. For example, it requires portable evacuation chairs at the top of every stairwell. But facilities are still required to have just one employee on duty overnight for every 99 residents. I don't care how many little evacuation chairs you have. If you have one person trying to do that, nobody's getting out. Murphy says the law also fails to acknowledge how complex residents' health status has gotten. Two decades ago, assisted living was meant for people who needed a little bit of help. 
Now more and more are bedridden or have dementia. At the Cascades of Grass Valley Assisted Living Facility, 90% of the residents have some form of dementia. Hi, Miss Fatty. Hi. Hi, Cleta. Administrator Pepsi Pittman rests her hand on the shoulder of a resident sitting by herself at the kitchen table. All right, are you ready for lunch? For lunch, I thought I was here for breakfast. <laughs> Research shows that people with dementia are more likely to die after a disaster. But the new law is silent on how to prepare this population. Fire drills aren't really an option. Loud sounds and changes in routine put people with dementia at risk for wandering off. We don't want to overstimulate them. We don't want to make them anxious. For advice on this, Pepsi confers with other facilities in town, like Atria Assisted Living down the road. When a brush fire broke out next to Atria's building last fall and they had to evacuate 110 people, staff told the dementia residents they were going on a field trip. You act like it's just another day and we're going for a bus ride. Regional Vice President Andrew Levine says they took everyone to the Crown Plaza Hotel in Sacramento. There, teams got to work making the room safe for people with dementia. We go in, we take out all the coffee machines, we take out the iron, the soaps. Why, why the soaps? Uh, because we don't want them to eat it. You know, we take out everything that potentially could be harmful. Beyond safety, staff went about recreating life at Atria at the hotel. Games, karaoke, dancing. It was a little mini vacation. It was fun. I think I won three bingo games. <laughs> Betty Johnson and Bud Paul are both 94. So we had a nice evening. and uh, Three days and later, when they came back to Grass Valley, downstairs. staff were in the driveway shaking pom-poms and pouring champagne. They were greeting us all lined up, welcome home, and you really felt it. But all these efforts were possible because Atria has a corporate office that can mobilize teams of people. Most facilities are smaller and can't afford that. And together, the industry lobbies to keep these kinds of best practices as recommendations rather than law. I'm April Domboski, KQED News. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Alison St. John, along with Maureen Cavanaugh. Chicano Park celebrates its 50th anniversary this year, and to mark the occasion, a new children's story tells the history of the park through the eyes of two children who move into Barrio Logan. Its author, Beatriz Zamora, calls Chicano Park, quote, a symbol of a community that found its voice. With its powerful murals painted on concrete pillars under the Interstate 5 freeway, the book, which is called The Spirit of Chicano Park, inspired beautiful illustrations by illustrator Mayra Meza. Beatriz Zamora joins us now. Welcome, Beatriz. Uh, good morning. Nice to be here. 
And illustrator Maida Mesa is also with us. Thank you for being with us, Maida. Thank you for having us. So Beatrice, you were born in Barrio Logan and have become a longtime community organizer. What inspired you to write a children's book about the founding of the park? Well, actually, I was born in Barrio Logan. And uh, shortly after my birth, my parents moved to Los Angeles, where I was raised. When I came back to San Diego as a young adult, um, I first became acquainted with Chicano Park. And I fell in love with the park the first time I stepped foot on, on the land. I think learning about the history of a community that in many ways had been overlooked, um, but they came together in unity and uh, they worked hard. Uh, they found their voice and they asked that San Diego, city of San Diego, help them build a park. So I was amazed at their fortitude and their resilience and the fact that they had been so successful in accomplishing their goal. You wrote about this story as one of struggle and one that includes a park takeover that lasted 12 days in a protest against the construction of a CHP patrol station, right? How did you explain this, this history to young kids in your book? The most important thing is to to be honest and yet not complicate the dialogue too much. And so I wanted children to understand that this community had been a vibrant community for many, many years. Um, It was a a barrio that the folks who lived there felt so proud uh, to live there. They had everything they needed and um, it was a vibrant neighborhood. And then when I-5 came through and the Coronado Bridge was constructed, um, about 15,000 residents were displaced through the laws of eminent domain. So I felt it was important for children to understand that this park uh, is a symbol of so much more than a lovely park to come and, and visit and enjoy, but it's also a symbol of a community's voice and their efforts to um, restore their community and to uh, develop more self-determination. So tell us a little bit about Betty and Bonky, the the two um, main characters in your book. Well, Betty is a young girl who uh, is not all that happy to be moving uh, once again. And uh, this time, though, it's different because her parents have actually purchased a home, and they plan to make Barrio Logan their permanent residence. So she's she's been through this before, and um, she's not so happy about leaving her school and her friends. Um, And then her mom has a great idea to uh, take both Bonky and Betty down the street to to a park that she had seen. And um, as they visit the park, they begin to realize the richness of the culture, the richness of the barrio, and um, the enjoyment that people have uh, being part of this park and identifying with the park. And in the end of the story, they realize that they have a lot to be proud of and that the park represents not only their past, but their future. And uh, they are happy then to be a part of Barrio Logan. So, Myra, the, the artwork in this book is as colorful as some of the murals in, in Chicano Park itself. Did you turn to those murals for inspiration? Yes, absolutely. I, I Well, both um, Beatrice and I, 
both felt strongly about. The murals is, it tells a history. Um, it tells the struggle. And, and that was definitely something very, very important to include in the book, along with um, all the names of the of the, well, most of the people that did some some murals that we have some interviews at the back uh, that are very important to include them include uh, Patricia Aguayo, Victor Ochoa, and some of those uh, those big shots that are that got to experience, especially Victor got to experience um, the takeover. And the murals is just if you walk through them, it, you could just it tells a story. You don't need um, anything to be printed. You just walk through it and. And it tells you the story of the, the struggle of the community and the victory that we all, we all get to experience, which is why it's so important to um, continue, continue this and, and to inspire the youth to learn about the takeover and everything that took place. And Beatrice, you know, the publishing industry has long been criticized for, for lack of diversity in children's books. And, and you actually self-published through Tolteca Press, this book, which is bilingual. How do you think that having books that reflect your own culture affects a child's learning? Well, I think it's paramount. When they have literature in front of them where they can connect, when they can see themselves in the book, it comes to life for them and becomes real. It becomes an inspiring moment for them to understand that education is for them too. And so to me, I've always felt, I'm a former educator, and I've always felt that it was really important for kids to, um, to see themselves not only in the, in the books and the literature and the movies that they're learning about, but in their teachers, in their role models in the community, and to know that they can have a positive impact in their world. And that some of the negative stereotypes that dominate the media and and other venues are not the whole picture. They may be a slice of who we are, but they're certainly not all of who we are. So I'd like to ask both of you, how do you think parents can use this book to teach kids about today's current protest movements against racial inequality? Well, I think the book demonstrates that uh, a community that felt uh, unempowered, a community that felt that no one would listen to them, spoke up, organized, and realized that if they, they were persistent, if they persevered, that they would be successful. And I think the current climate that we're living in, we've been dealing with these issues for forever, all of my existence, but coming to a culmination of the Black Lives Matter, that basically means that all lives matter. And that means all voices matter in this country. I use this book a lot. and I, I teach classes online and a lot of our the painters are our children. So um, I'm very excited that a lot of them got to have this in their hands and enjoy it and and you can you can learn so much from it it's just important that we we continue to teach our children that um it's important to to speak up for ourselves for our communities and to learn about our cultures and to stay involved with our cultures as well the name of the book is the spirit of chicano park and we've been speaking with its author beatriz zamora thank you beatriz thank you and the illustrator myra mesa thank you myra thank you Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, 
Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.